she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in a brief word of prayer? Uh, Father, we thank you for the gift of your son and for the Christmas season where we can remember the wonder of that miracle that you did so that we truly could have God with us in the man Jesus Christ. Would you open our hearts to that wondrous miracle this morning? Uh, help us to slow down, stop thinking about all the trappings that come with the holiday, all the traveling and the decorations, and many good things. And yet, in, in all of that, the possibility of losing the aspect of faith and the miracle of Jesus coming in the flesh. Uh, this morning, would we dwell on the thought of him as being one of us. We pray this in his mighty name. Amen. Well, we are far enough into the Christmas season that Christmas music is playing all around us, which means you've probably, by this point, heard a very familiar tune. I'll read some of the words that go with it. I'll be home for Christmas. You can plan on me. Please have snow and mistletoe and presents by the tree. Christmas Eve will find me where the love light gleams. I'll be home for Christmas, if only in my dreams. It's not too much to say that that is woven into the fabric of how our country celebrates Christmas, because since 1943, Bing Crosby's voice singing those words has been a part of what we know the season of Christmas to include. Um, when it came out, there's a reason why it resonated the way it did. 1943, right in the middle of World War II. Uh, the song is written from the perspective of a soldier a long, long way from home on the front lines, looking with longing on what he's missing out on. That is being surrounded by those that he loves most and the warm embrace of a Christmas gathering. It's got a melancholy tone to it because it ends with the realization that He's not going to make it back, at least not this year, if only in my dreams. You can understand how a country at war would resonate with that melancholy tone, but you can also see how it plugs into some true feelings about Christmas that we all have. Uh, isn't it true that the warmest embrace of love that we have with family and those who we're closest with just can't be substituted with? anything but being there with them. That's why we take such great efforts to travel across the country, spending large amounts of money to get together, not just because we enjoy opening presents and dinners, but because true love, the deepest levels of warm love, are expressed by being with someone. And of course, the true Christmas story, when you cut back all the Christmas cheer and cheese of all the decorations and the like, at its core, it resonates with that very thought. Because the miracle of Christmas is that God wants to be with us. 
And he wants to wrap us in the warm embrace of the very Trinity in heaven. So much so that he would even send his son to make it happen, to become one of us. So for three Sundays, we're going to slow down and try to dwell on the miracle of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Um, I hope that we'll find ourselves drawn to worship with this one main thought. Jesus became one of us to save all of us being God with us. Jesus became one of us to save all of us being God with us. Uh, This morning we're going to focus on the first of those three ideas that Jesus became one of us looking at the humanity of Jesus Christ. I hope to convince you of this, that Jesus became one of us so he can help us in our experience of humanity. We'll see that in three sections uh, about the humanness of Jesus. First, that he is from the Spirit. He's from the Spirit. Second, that he is fully human. He's fully human. And third, that he is free from sin. Free from sin. Let's begin in that first section, that he is from the Spirit. Uh, Matthew starts us off with the Christmas story telling us of a social scandal. There was an engaged couple, a teenage girl and a strapping young man known to be pure and upright. Only one problem, the teenage girl was pregnant. Uh, Back then, we know that the engagements were thicker than they are today. Uh, To break one off was akin to a type of divorce. It's a really, really big deal. So Joseph, by his rights, when he discovered that Mary was pregnant, had every reason to go through with breaking everything off. After all, he was no fool. He, like everyone else, knew how these sorts of things worked. One does not become pregnant just on their own. Something, someone else must have been involved. But Joseph, being a merciful, upright, gracious man, decided that he was going to try and soften the blow as best he could. That he would break it off, but he would do so in a way that would minimize the fallout. Try and keep it quiet. As few nosy people as possible would be brought into the know as he did it. While while he was considering how to do that, something amazing happens. God intervened. He sent an angel to tell Joseph, no, 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 you must not go through with breaking it off with Mary. Uh, Because, in fact, there's a big misunderstanding. Mary has not been unfaithful. She's just as pure as you hoped she was. In fact, there's a completely different explanation for what happened. Verse 20, the angel tells us what happened. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Sure, those were shocking words for Joseph to hear. A a miracle inside the womb of his fiancée, unlike any that had occurred before in human history. A baby that came about not by the will of man, but by the powerful working of God. In Luke's gospel, how this happened is described as the power of the Most High overshadowing Mary. Somehow, in a miracle of God, Jesus, the man, 
It's conceived in the womb of this virgin teenage girl. That's super important because right from the beginning, it shows that the incarnation of Jesus is a work of God and not of man. It allows for Jesus to be both fully God and fully man. As we'll see later, that's part of God's central purpose and being able to be God with us. Now, it would be right to describe this as a miraculous conception, but as soon as I use words like that, I know the doctrine of the Catholic Church, the Immaculate Conception, comes to mind. Maybe you've heard of it. Uh, you see, the Catholic Church teaches that for, God, for Jesus to be truly sinless and God and man, that not only he needed to be protected from sin, but also his mother needed to be free from sin as well. So the Catholic Church teaches that there was an immaculate conception, not Jesus being conceived, but in fact, the Virgin Mary. That Mary was free from sin, which allowed her to be the mother of Jesus. Uh, now, frankly, the Bible teaches no such thing. It does hold Mary up as a wonderful example of a faith-filled person. She is undoubtedly one of the heroes of the faith. However, it never presents her as uh, sinless, and it never connects the dots between her sinlessness and Jesus's sinlessness. Now, the miracle described here is of the miracle of Jesus's conception. From the very moment of his first existence, Jesus was fully God and fully man and fully free from sin. And according to the way Matthew presents it, that was simply a miracle that God did. Now, I don't want us to lose the social moment that this all occurred in. Remember, this was all news delivered from a very terrifying angel to a heartbroken fiancé who was figuring out how to get off uh, take the off-ramp from his engagement. And realize that Joseph had before him two options. Uh, one option would be to take this as just a set of words that had a much simpler explanation behind them. Oh, sure, I'm having this weird vision, but I know the way these things work. I know that, I know the score. There's no way that what this supposed vision I'm having of an angel is saying is true. And Joseph probably would have felt very justified in breaking things off if he just disregarded the words sent from heaven. But on the other hand, he could take God at his word, the words delivered through the angel, and he, but doing so would require exercising faith. Now, Joseph, thankfully, as the rest of the story unfolds, he believes what the angel says. He doesn't break it off with Mary. And he goes on to fulfill his obligation and even have a role in the life of the man Jesus Christ being raised for however long that was. And I think there's an analogy for us from Joseph's, Joseph's choice in how we respond to the Christmas holiday ourselves. See, there is an opportunity, with Christmas being a cultural holiday the way it is, uh, to take it purely on crass social terms. I mean, there are, there's the consumeristic version of Christmas. I, I don't hear many people lauding that these days. Uh, that's being all caught up in the presents and how much money you spend. But then there's this other version of it that sees it as a good social thing. I mean, undoubtedly, it is helpful societally 
for us to have a time where we all take a break from work and celebrate the same holiday. It builds connective tissue between us all that we all sing the same songs and enjoy traditions. Uh, even having a shared story that we all remember together, sociologists will tell you, that sort of stuff is really helpful for a culture to remain cohesive. Well, as good and true as all those things are, though, they are not the same thing as faith. It's possible to take Christmas, even to love it, and to remove the miracle straight out of it. Just think of it as some story, one we all love to tell, but none of us actually believe. Or you can believe that these things truly happened. That there really was a child that was born of a virgin. That there really was a set of parents that were confused, received messages from heaven telling them they were part of God's grand plan. And somehow in all of this, the redemption of the world was brought about. And God fulfilling his intention to be God with us. Friends, it requires faith to celebrate Christmas that way. And that's my encouragement to each of you to, to soberly consider how much of what you love about Christmas comes from the cultural trappings, as good as they may be, and how much of it is coming from heartfelt, soul-confident faith. Might there be some way that you can even shape your gatherings this year that shows the world and your family, even reminds yourself that these things are true and that this is the greatest miracle that ever could have occurred. God taking on flesh to become be one with us. First, what does the incarnation of Jesus mean? Well, it means Jesus is from the Spirit. Secondly, it also means that Jesus is fully human. Fully human. The angel tells Joseph that Mary will bear a son. It's important what he does say. It's also important what he doesn't say. He does not say that Mary will have something that looks like a son. Something that has the appearance of a son. Or something that is like a cheap AI imitation of a son. Now he says she will bear a son. I'm sure none of us want to celebrate Christmas by being heretics. Um, and yet that has been a real temptation for people who claim the name of Christ. Going back to the earliest apostles. Uh, there's one particular heresy early in the history of Christianity called docetism. Um, a docetist is someone who had bought into the thought of the day that the flesh is sinful and bad, the material world needs to be escaped, because to be spiritual, immaterial, is really to be pure and to have experience of the divine. Which meant the human project was one of escaping the flesh and its trappings and somehow attaining a spiritual existence. Well, if you bought into that mindset, you hear about Jesus coming in the incarnation, and it's a huge stumbling block for you. So the docetists started to say, whoa, 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 Jesus wasn't really a human being. No, no, he just appeared like he was one. Uh, God did some sort of a miracle. Maybe it was an illusion of some sort. 
or maybe it was just a miracle in and of itself. But somehow Jesus looked to be one thing when in fact he was something else. He certainly was not a human because to be human is to be sinful and unbecoming of deity. That's called docetism. And in fact, your Bible has parts of it that push back against the idea of docetism, or at least something like it, very specifically. For example, 2 John 7. 2 John verse 7, For many deceivers have gone into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. See what it's pointing at? Such a one is a deceiver and the antichrist. Uh, from the early days of Christianity, it has been obvious that we must confess Jesus came in the flesh. And yet, I think that there are still subtle hints of this sort of idea that you could still notice in modern evangelical Christianity. I, I don't think anyone would be an outright docetist in the full-blown sense, but I think there are some subtle versions of it. Uh, even some of the Christmas songs that we love to sing each year, they have... An image of a baby being born, no crying he makes, as if there's ever been a healthy baby that doesn't cry, or as if crying is somehow less than what Jesus would have been. Um, there's also this image of Jesus floating through the world, almost like he's uh, an ethereal being. Um, that my grandmother uh, had this picture of Jesus, a very common one, in which he has this beautiful, luscious beard, and he's got these sharp features, but he's glowing. Like somehow there are LEDs implanted in his body. It's, it's weird when you think about it. And it's like, okay, it would be one thing to think of Jesus that way, resurrected and glorified, but sometimes we have an image of him walking around like that during his earthly life. But in so doing, we're taking one truth the Bible teaches, that Jesus is truly the Son, God from heaven. And we're flattening out another thing the Bible teaches, that he is fully one of us, a true human. You know what the Bible teaches is more beautiful than that? He is fully God, fully man, which is why he's fully able to save us from our sins. See, we need to have room in our hearts each Christmas for Jesus as a true human. Uh, there was a time when Jesus was a bawling baby in need of nursing from Mary, who needed his every need attended to because he would be utterly helpless like every other infant. There was a time where Jesus was a wobbling toddler, just figuring out how to take some unsure steps from the first, for the first time and falling flat on his face to the delight of everyone around him. It was a time where Jesus explored the world around him by putting everything he could touch in his mouth. It was a time where Jesus started to learn to talk, where all the babbling that proceeded turned into simple words like da-da and ma-ma. And then there was a time where he started to string together sentences. First, very, very simple ones. And then, faster than you would believe, more and more complex ones. Uh, there was a time where Jesus seemed to be growing by the foot every time you saw him. And with his physical growing came a deeper knowing. 
knowing of the world around him, knowing of what it meant to be a good neighbor and son, most of all, knowing what his heavenly father would have of him as he knew the scriptures for himself. There was a time where Jesus was a tween, where he would have had arms and legs that had grown faster than his brain could keep up, and so he was awkward as he bobbled about. It was a time where his voice probably cracked awkwardly, and he had a teenage mustache that wasn't much to look at. And then there was a time when his shoulders had finished broadening and his voice had grown into its rich depth and that mustache had turned into a full-fledged, luscious beard. And Jesus was a true man. Because Jesus was truly one of us. He experienced all of what it means to be a human, including growing. And that includes the hard parts of humanity. Uh, Jesus, the Bible records for us Jesus getting hungry and getting thirsty. It records Jesus needing a nap. It records him being in physical pain. It even records him having his heart experience great anxiety. Even to the point where he drops sweats like blood as he prays. In all this, Jesus knows what it is to be human because he truly was one of us. Now, why is that important? Well, at least three reasons. Well, one, Jesus becoming one of us gives dignity and confirms the sanctity of life in being image bearers of God. Jesus being one of us is telling because he chose to become a human not a frog or a duck or any other type of animal. And in so doing, he gave confirmation to that which from the beginning God explicitly stated, that humanity had a special purpose being made in his image. Uh, Jesus removes any doubt that anyone might have. If God himself can truly become one of us, then a human life surely is a life that's worth living. I think this means that Christmas is an especially fitting time for us to be expressing our pro-life convictions. Uh, it's telling that the story of Jesus' entrance into the world starts in the womb of a mother. So certainly we should be thinking about how we can stand for the uh, cause of life in our day. It's also true that the other end of the spectrum, even as our earthly lives are coming to an end, that Jesus gives dignity even to the hardest parts of living, even up until the moments of dying. Because Jesus both lived and died as a human being and showed us that it's not sub-spiritual to experience such things. So I, I encourage you, maybe this Christmas you think about how you can be involved holding up the dignity and value and the sanctity of life in our day. If you want a suggestion, one way you might do that, one of our local outreach partners, Life Centers, they're always looking for more volunteers as well as more resources be able to, to be able to do their gospel ministry, reaching out to mothers. I encourage you to explore how maybe you could be a part of their ministry. Now, of course, it's true that Jesus gives dignity and confirms the value of human life broadly, but he also does it individually. 
Uh, Christmas is a time when all sorts of things are stirred up. Uh, for many, it's those strong feelings of love and joy. For others, it, the lack of having family or friends around or even strained relationships actually makes this a really, really hard time. Uh, maybe you're even here this morning and you've had thoughts like, does anyone really care? What is my life even about? Is my life even worth living? Well, if you've had thoughts like that, you're not alone. But know that the incarnation of Jesus confirms that, yes, your life matters in God's sight. God hasn't given up on humanity, though we've been sinful and strayed, both as a collective and as individuals. The sending of Jesus confirms that God is still intending to use us to rule and reign with him, to one day redeem us and free us from the brokenness that sin has brought into the world and into our souls. And that means God has an intention for your life. Whatever circumstances brought you here this morning, friend, hear this. Your life has meaning. And you can know that because Jesus Christ came to live a human life like yours. There's a third implication from this that I think we need to draw out. Jesus had to become one of us so he could help us in our humanity. Now, experiential knowledge is not everything. Uh, it's certainly true that God knows everything. He doesn't need to experience it to know what it's like. And yet, the Bible itself does hold out experiential knowledge as one of the reasons that Jesus came in the incarnation. Hebrews 2, 16 through 17 says, For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. Uh, Jesus, so that he could help us in our humanity, made sure that he knew exactly what it was like. I once met a man who was a quarterback coach in the National Football League. He was the guy that tries to get quarterbacks better at receiving their snaps, dropping back, and throwing those beautiful spirals down the field. And he's really good at what he does. He knows all the technical aspects of it and how many steps and where, where to have them and pacing and where you move your eyes. He's really good at what he does. Um, one of the reasons he's so good at what he does, though, is because he was a former player. Um, he was a quarterback himself, a very successful one at that. So when the quarterbacks he's coaching have one of those moments where they throw an interception or that giant guy drives them face first into the turf and they've got grass all in their face mask. He's able to receive them in the sidelines, put his arm around them and say, I've been there. Let's talk about how we're going to do this better next time. And he's able to help, right? Well, according to the Bible, uh, Jesus lowered himself to become one of us so he can help each and every one of us in our humanity. Uh, don't think of your frailty as a human as somehow off limits to what Jesus can help you with. He knows what it is to be in pain. 
He knows what it is to have no energy. He knows what it is to have his heart in turmoil within him. And he delights to provide you with help by his grace when you bring those burdens to him. Uh, maybe you find yourself this week dealing with chronic pain of some sort. Or maybe you woke up tired, not even sure how you'll have enough energy to get through the day. Or maybe even as you're listening to this sermon, you find yourself getting hungry, distractingly so. You wish it weren't the case, but it is. You know, you can bring all those things to Jesus. He knows what it's like. And he's eager to give you the help you need to be faithful in this moment. It's a sad thing to get news of our dear sister Cecilia passing. Um, it'll be praying for the Mertz family, even as we know that she's in the comfort of her Savior right now. Uh, one of the things that she, along with so many other faithful Christians who lived through a season of life like that, are able to teach us is how Jesus provides that sort of help, even as our earthly bodies start to fail. Uh, even when cancer treatments rob us of our energy and make life so, so difficult. Uh, even when pain seems like our constant companion. Even when we lose our ability to serve and do so many things that people knew us for. At moments like that, it's possible to be faithful. Not because we're strong in and of ourselves, but because we have a high priest who can sympathize with the frailty of what it means to be human. I think what uh, as our earthly bodies become weaker, the help that Jesus provides for us, even in how we live physically as humans, becomes even more evident. I pray you would have eyes of faith to see it as you care give for those around you, or maybe even as you live through it yourself. There's one thing about Jesus, though, as much as he knows exactly what it is to be human, there's one big difference between his human life in our human life. And that is that Jesus is utterly free from sin. Hebrews chapter 4 teaches as much. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has in every respect been tempted as we are, and yet, without sin. It's really hard to imagine what a truly sinless life was like. But from the very beginning, Jesus was completely free from sin. In his conception, not because Mary was sinless, but by the mysterious power of God, Jesus never inherited a sin nature like each and every one of us. But not only that, Jesus, even as he started to make his earliest actions, never committed any willful sins either. When he was learning his first words, he never started shouting, Mine! No! No! He always obeyed. His earthly parents, and then it would be revealed, his heavenly father. Everything he did was something his heavenly father put in front of him, a, a joyful act of obedience from the son to the father. 
Even his very words were words that he was given from above. Jesus never once lost his temper and sinful anger. He never once nurtured a lustful thought. He never allowed his soul to become puffed up with pride. Jesus was completely and utterly free from sin. From the moment he was conceived until the moment he died. He was a perfect human who lived a perfect life in perfect submission to his heavenly father. Now, my guess is most of us believe that. But one of the temptations is to think that because Jesus is sinlessly perfect, that that means he would have trouble sympathizing with those of us who do sin. After all, it might be hard to have sympathy for someone who gives in to sin when you yourself don't. Um, but it actually doesn't work that way. Um, my kids and I were watching a game show recently in which four contestants were put up on a slack line over a big swimming pool. Uh, they were up on the slack line holding on, uh, told that whichever of them stayed up there the longest would receive a huge sum of money. So it turned into an endurance game. Uh, they, and first, it seemed pretty easy, standing on a rope, holding on to a rope. You could do that for a while. But then a couple hours went by, three hours, four hours, five hours. You could tell they were starting to get a little tired of being up there. They started trying to talk each other into reasons to give up. Hey, if I win and you jump in right now, I'll give you some of the money. A little psychological warfare. Well, about eight hours in, the first person had enough, let go, jumped into the pool. There were three left. But those three seemed like they were going the distance. Ten hours, 12 hours, 18 hours. They got to 20 hours before the second person had enough and finally jumped in. Those last two, though, they were not going to give up. So much money, so close. So hour after hour, they held on. Until after, I think it was hour 40, one of them finally couldn't hold on anymore and fell in. Felt so bad for that one. Get all that way to the end and just to fail. Right? Now ask yourself, uh, which of the contestants really understood how hard that contest was? Uh, was it the person who held on for eight hours? They knew some of how hard it was, but not nearly as much as the 20-hour person, right? And even they only knew half as much of how difficult it was. It was the 40-hour person. And even the one who didn't let go that really knows how hard that contest was. Now, author Dane Ortland, in his book, uh, Gentle and Lowly, uses an analogy like this to explain how Jesus, even though he never gave in to sin, Jesus understands better than anyone just how difficult it is to overcome temptation and put sin to death. Because Jesus didn't just stand up under temptation for a short period of his life. No, he endured all the way to the end and never once gave in. And that means that no matter what state of temptation or having failed, that we bring our dirty hands to Jesus, will we ever find him unable to sympathize and even unwilling to give us the grace we need to be lovingly restored 
and welcome in the embrace of the God who wants to be truly with us. Our brothers and sisters, I know that you have come this morning with different experiences, different temptations, different battles with sin. Some of them have you won by the power of the Holy Spirit, and, and others you've fallen flat on your face yet again. What do you know, no matter what state you walked in this morning, that, that Jesus knows your struggle with sin, and he longs to fill with grace what's lacking in your soul, even this morning. He already paid for your sins on the cross, including the ones you committed this week. And he wants to restore the joy of your salvation to the point where you know that great blessing that God intended from the beginning to be wrapped in the warm embrace of God that's come to be with us. Uh, maybe you're here this morning and you doubt whether Jesus really wants to do that for you again. Maybe you believe it, but just over time you've lost a bit of the wonder of it. Well, brothers and sisters, that's why the Lord has given us this wonderful rhythm as a church again and again to draw close to the God who is with us through the Lord's table. Uh, in it, we have a reminder of what it took to purchase our redemption. And in it, we see the fellowship that we share together. And one day, we will share face-to-face -face with Jesus, the one who came to be one of us, to save all of us, so that we could have God with us forever. That's a reason to be joyful this Christmas. Would you prepare your heart to approach the Lord's table as we remember the God who came to be with us in the man, Jesus Christ? Oh, Father, we thank you for your great plan down through the ages, from before the foundations of the earth, to wrap us in your loving arms through the embrace of your Son. One who had every right to remain in heaven and enjoy all the blessings fit for God, instead, in an act of love, took on human flesh and endured living in this sinful, broken world as truly one of us. Thank you for giving him the mission to save us. Thank you for his perfect life given in exchange for our sinful ones. And thank you for this reminder that you've commanded us to eat and drink and remember that our sins have been wiped away by the body that was broken and blood that was shed on the cross of Calvary. Uh, Father, as we come to the table now, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning who has not yet drawn close to you through the man Jesus Christ in repentance and faith, that today would be the day where they would do so for the first time, that they would find forgiveness of their sins and warm embrace, God living with us on the inside by the Holy Spirit. Uh, Father, I pray whatever they might know up until now, that you would clarify in their heart how they can trust fully in Jesus to save them, and that we would see the miracle of a new person born again even today. 
I also pray for all the Christians who are gathered here this morning, Father, that as we come to the table, that we would take stock of our own hearts to be able to be to uh, quickly confess the sins we've committed even this week, and even to find the assurance of pardon that you intend for us to have based wholly on the sacrifice of Jesus being sufficient for our sins. I pray also that you would remind us of our shared unity as one body, saved together by your intention that will inhabit the very kingdom of God when it covers the earth in glory in a day to come. So Father, help us as we approach this table to remember all the blessings that we have with you, our God that is with us through the man, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his mighty name. Amen.